Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy, a podcast that looks at the inspiration, intention, action, and choices that you can make to bring more joy into your life, into the world, and into other people's lives. This is your host, Paula Jenkins. Welcome to episode 212. (laughs) This week on the show, I am so excited to have author Fred Waitzkin joining me. He is best known for having written The Search for Bobby Fischer, which of course is the book that details the chronicles of he and his son Josh, who is a chess prodigy and goes on to win the U.S. primary school championships at age nine. It is such a delight of a book and of course was made into a movie in 1993 as well. So it's a delight to have Fred on to talk about that book along with his new work, which is a fictional story called Deep Water Blues. And the thing that really stands out for me about this conversation is how we talk about Fred's creative process, which is something that's just been lighting me up recently in my work as a podcast producer. Before we get to the show, I want to give you a very warm welcome and say thank you so much for tuning in this week and always. If you are new here, I'm delighted that you're tuning in and hope that you will check out the back catalog. You can find out everything about this podcast and myself at jumpstartyourjoy.com. And while you're there, there are a lot of fun episodes in the back catalog. You might want to look for Danny Wood of New Kids on the Block, for Allison Arngrim, who played Nellie Olson on Little House on the Prairie. We also have had General Grievous of Star Wars fame on. <laughs> That's Matthew Wood. So please take a listen to some of the back catalog. I'm sure you will find plenty to binge on that are just full of joy. While you're there, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which is a lot of fun. I I love sending them out because I get to dive into the inspiration, intention, and action that I see coming out and through each one of the conversations and the solo cast that I get to do here on the show. There's always stuff that goes on you know, behind the scenes and in my head as I'm talking to each guest, and the newsletter has really become this special way for me to get to share that with you. It's also a really fun way if you know you aren't an official subscriber, and subscribing, of course, to a podcast is free free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, you can totally do that. But if you maybe are forgetful, the newsletter is another great way for you to get a reminder that, hey, there's a new episode up and you can listen to it. (laughs) So you can find all that on jumpstartyourjoy.com. And of course, as a dutiful podcaster, I always do show notes for every episode. You can find them for this conversation with Fred at jumpstartyourjoy.com forward slash Fred book. And you'll find links out to Fred's uh, website and to Deepwater Blues, the book, if you're curious. Before we get into this interview that I just, it was such a treat to get to speak with Fred. You will notice that the sound quality is a little off. I think uh, just on his side, he was on a a landline, I think. Bear with it. (laughs) It's totally worth it because what you'll hear is we get into this really juicy part of the discussion, which is all about the creative process. And the thing that I loved is... Fred gets into how he how he writes a book, whether it be fiction or nonfiction. And the nugget that I love is that he says, get out of your own way and discover what's living inside of you in a pre-analytic place. Oh my goodness. He also talks about how he finds himself in a bubble that he becomes very protective of. Some other authors might call that the zone or flow or whatever, but that he finds himself getting into this bubble where he can do his work and that things are free flowing and just coming through him and how protective he has to be of that space. There's so much to glean from this, especially if you have a creative outlet or pursuit that you are engaged in. 
If you are a podcaster, you have to tune in and apply some of this to whatever it is that you are creating. Because here's the takeaway. (laughs) Here's the nutshell for you. You have to set aside time for the ideas, the muse, the creativity to come to you and then set the space and the time for it so that it can happen. You set the intention to be creative and then the action itself can happen. So I know you're going to glean so much for this conversation. Let's just get right to the show. Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy, Fred. I'm delighted to be with you today. That's great. Yay. (laughs) The first question I ask everybody is, tell us about what you loved most as a child or in school. What were your earliest sparks of joy? I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island, Mm -hmm. and I was kind of like an outsider as a kid. I didn't like school very much. I looked forward to school ending and coming home and and playing ball with a couple of friends in the street. I, I loved the summer when there was no school. And I look forward to going fishing. Fishing is a passion of mine. So that was a high point from, for growing up. I hung out with my dad, who was a lighting fixture salesman and a fisherman, mm-hmm. and my mother, who was an abstract painter. I, I kind of had an, an unusual childhood in the sense that both of my parents kind of like pulled in different directions, but they were both very interesting. And they, they were both looking back on it from a long way, ways off now. They were both very, very powerful literary influences. Yeah. I know you have talked about several things about your childhood, and and one of them by about age 13, you were talking about being either a writer or a Cuban drummer or maybe a professional fisherman. (laughs) What was stewing for you in that? What were you thinking at that age about those things? My my dad was a a salesman. He sold sold fluorescent lighting fixtures, and and I was just in love with my father. And I just, you know, he, he was a great salesman, and that was a a period of great building in New York City at the time. And so at night, when we'd go in the city and those great lights would go on from all the big buildings. Mm-hmm. I envisioned that that was my dad's work, that he lived the city of New York. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when I was 13 years old, my mother um, sat me down at, at the kitchen table and put a copy of Life magazine in front of me. And there was the original publication of Ernest Hemingway's Old Man in the City. She told me to read it. So I read this book, and by the time I finished it, I had a much clearer idea of where my life's direction would be. I decided that I would be a fisherman and a writer because I was intoxicated by the story that he told and the way he told it. Those other things were also facets of my youth, though. I was a drummer. I I was an Afro-Cuban drummer, and and I did that with great passion for a number of years, my teenage years. So, But but writing and and fishing was sort of like the direction that I was going in as a youngster. I love that very much, especially because I know... I mean, the fishing and the obviously becoming a writer are two things that definitely came into being for you. And also, I love The Old Man in the Sea is such a simple story, but it's so deep. <laughs> no no puns intended, but I could see that being so influential. Kind of one of my favorites would be of Mice and Men. Steinbeck announced at like age seven that he was going to be a writer, you know, in the family living room and just said, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> And then wrote one of my favorite stories that's so simple and yet not so simple. Yeah, that was a great book for sure. What did your path look like if you would kind of explain to the audience to getting to that space where you are now a full-time writer? Well, it was kind of a windy road. I went to um, Kenyon College in Ohio, which is mm-hmm. a place that uh, would-be writers often went to. They had a great, great English department. And then after I went to graduate school for a while and then I, I took the college teaching position in the Virgin Islands, which I was drawn to because the fishing is so great down there. I was teaching literature and I was fishing. 
Uh, and then I moved back to New York City in my middle 20s, and I decided I would give it a shot to be a writer, a full-time writer. And uh, my mom, who was living in the city at the time, loaned me at her, her cold water studio, which was on 14th Street, overlooking S. Klein's um, in Manhattan. And I set about to write the great American novel. And I went up to this studio every day for about two years, trying to imagine what the plot of my novel was going to be, because I wanted to write a novel like Tolstoy, some you know, intricate thing with war and peace and love and, oh my God, anything you can imagine. And I spent two years trying to figure out what the great plot would be. And the only thing I could come up with were my dreams, the dreams that I had at night. And they were often dark and depressing. Uh, they, they, they weren't like Tolstoy novels at all. They were Fred's crazy dreams. You know, my first two years working as a fiction writer weren't terribly successful. It was a struggle to figure out how to write. And then after that, I kind of moved sideways into journalism. I started writing um, feature journalism for a lot of national magazines. I wrote a lot for the New York Times Sunday Magazine and, and for Esquire and New York Magazine, a lot of very good magazines. And I learned, to my surprise, that there were stories everywhere. It wasn't a question of like inventing stories like fairy tales. That, that you could find stories everywhere. You could find them on the subway. You could interview someone and have a beer with him and all of a sudden he's telling you a story and it's utterly fascinating. There were stories everywhere I looked. So, you know, early on I couldn't find a story and then all of a sudden there were stories everywhere. And doing journalism was a great training ground for a wannabe novelist. And um, after doing that for a dozen years, I began writing books. Uh, my first book was Searching for Bobby Fisher and then I wrote a few other nonfiction books and then I wrote started writing my novels. That's so good. And I think it's so interesting when you look at the process piece of writing, there's that idea that we kind of have to effort our way into a creative process. I work with a lot of podcasters who are working to craft their own stories and whatever their message is for the world. And sometimes it's that thing where they feel like they have to sit down and make the thing that feels like what everyone's expecting. I don't know if that's exactly the right words for it, but then what I heard in your story there is that when you kind of got out of your own way, then things just happened. Do you find that to be true for your own process? I think that's a great insight. Occasionally I work with um, other writers, young writers, which I enjoy a lot, just informally. And one of the questions that I, I get asked sometimes is that when I'm writing a book, do I write an intricate outline? And I say, absolutely not. And then the question is why? And I say, because like, I think the great writing that you have in you is to be found, and, and you have to discover it in what I call a pre-analytic place. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I have, when I start writing something, I, I take a few notes. I have a general idea what I want my book to be about. So I, and then I want to begin a chapter. And I, on a three-by-five card, I'll have four or five ideas that I want to pursue in the chapter. But then after that, I sit down at the computer and just let it go. And when things are really working well for me as a writer, I'm not thinking about what I'm saying or what I'm going to say next. I'm just kind of an instrument. And I let and the, and the words go through me, and then they come onto the page. Now, of course, it's not that mystical. I mean, you know, I've been writing for a lot of years, and so my process has become integrated. It wasn't like this right from the beginning. But, but once a writer has learned something about his craft and art, I think it's very important for him to discover what's living inside of him that he not might not even realize, because that where the, that's where the greatness lies. Yeah, and have a sense of that thing in that space. I think you call it in the bubble. Is that what you call what other authors might call in the zone or wherever that, that space is that it, it's flowing for you? Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Yes, it's definitely connected. 
it's a kind of a parallel idea. When things are really going well for me in my writing, if I'm working on a book or even an essay, and I have a sense for it, and I've got my arms around it, and I'm inspired, I think of myself as being inside the bubble. And it's a very protected place. It's a very special place, and a writer has to be very protective of himself if he's inside that bubble. He has to really kind of like cultivate it, like cultivating a garden and be, and be gentle with it and try to remain inside that bubble as long as he can. Because if, if you're in the bubble, again, you're in that pre-analytic place that I was talking about a few minutes ago, yeah. where, where you have a general idea of what you want to say, but it's just coming. It's coming from a deep place. Then what happens very often is that the world gets in the way of writing. You get a phone call, or worse than that, you have to leave town for a week. And then you come back to your office, try to enter the story, and you notice you're not in the bubble anymore. You're outside the bubble, and it can be it can be hell to get right back in again. It's a it's a very special place to be in, and for a writer, you have to you have to be very self protective. You have to be almost fierce. You know, when you're working well in your work, you don't want to take any interruptions. You don't want to be bothered. You don't want to go on vacations. You don't want to do anything. Just want to do that work as long as you're in that sacred place. Mm, I like that you call it a sacred space because it does seem in ways that I've heard other t- people talk about that creative process and when they're kind of in the zone, you also mentioned that it almost feels like the writing is coming through you. Could you talk any more about how that either feels or how you find your way into a story, kind of the intuitive sense of this is where I'm supposed to be? Well, you know, how do I find my way into a story? The most important part of working into a story, um, and this I alluded to when I started talking about my difficulties, my early difficulties as an author, in my middle 20s, is to find a story. It's a story that people will like, a story that would intrigue you, that you might be excited about, that you might find mysterious, that you might find sexy, that you might find interesting, that you might find surprising. And then the second element of the story is that you have to love it yourself because a story that you love might not mean that I would love it. So the key is to find a story that you love but that I love as well because if I don't love it, I'm not going to want to be involved with it for a year or two or six months or three years, forever length that it takes me to write it. And then when you're working on this story that you've discovered and that you're falling in love with, you're making discoveries all the way through it. You're digging deeper and deeper into it. You're discovering parts about the story that you never imagined were there. So the first part of getting into this thing is finding the story. Because I, don't, I think a lot of young writers don't understand this. I think a lot of young writers think, you know, if I'm a brilliant stylist, if I can write sentences like Foster Wallace or, you know, or James Joyce or Proust or whomever, whomever great writer you might love or James Joyce, that's going to be the key. But it really isn't the key. The key is finding a great story to write. Because if even a good writer or a fairly good writer has a great story, he can go a long way with it. If you're a great writer and you don't have a good story, no one's going to be interested Yeah, that's powerful. And it's interesting then the parallels between that and like how when people are trying to find their way into a podcast that they want to create, it's that same thing, like finding that nugget that you love so much that you just, you know, it's going to power you and like give you the inspiration, but also something that's like year over year, you're still going to be in love with and that you're going to want to continue the dance with (laughs) because otherwise it's real easy to get what, uninfatuated with it and want to leave it. Yeah, it, it's like having a girlfriend, right? I mean, like, yeah. I mean, you know, if after six months it's over, okay, it's over, but you still have to finish the book. <laughs> What's going to happen? Right, yeah. And have you had relationships with the story that you got six months in and you're like, yeah, this book just is not, it's not here for me? 
earlier on I did, in, you know, in the early years, you know, who, who knows for sure why? Maybe it was because I wasn't ready to finish a book yet. You know, when I was 28 or 25 or, or even 30, and I, I started novels a couple times and they lost interest for me quickly. But maybe it was just that I was struggling with the writing. And I didn't know quite how to write a novel. And so I don't want to be inaccurate. But, but this part about finding the story that's right for you is very, very important. You want me to tell you a little bit about how I found the story for Deepwater Blues? It's kind of an interesting story. Yes, I would. because That's a great segue because, I mean, I'm fascinated with the Bahamas myself. (laughs) I've only been there once and I totally want to go back. But I could see where it's a space that like, yes, I love it. And I could see it being a canvas. Well, there's this little island in the southern Bahamas. It's about as far south in the Bahamas as you can go without getting to the Turks and Caicos, which is the next country to the south of the Bahamas. It's about 350 miles south of, of, of Miami. And there's this little island. It's called Rum Key. It's a real place. And I discovered it about 20 or 25 years ago. I, I own a boat. I've owned it for almost 30 years. It's, a, it's an old boat now. An, an old but great boat. It's a 42-foot foot sport fishing boat. It's like a member of my family. And for years, I would fish with my, my son and my daughter and my wife. It's a fishing team. We'd go to these little islands. And we discovered this place called Rum Key. And it's a tiny little place. It's, I don't know, maybe 12 miles long or 14 miles long. But it's unlike a regular Bahamian island in the sense that many of those islands are very flat and there isn't much vegetation. But Rumkey is sort of all mountains, beautiful dark green, physically gorgeous. There's no harbor there. There's not hardly any, maybe 50 or 60 people living on the island. And there are all sorts of wild cows and wild pigs on the island. And also at the south end of the, of the island, is this beautiful little marina, which is like a place with docks, but not a big place like you might find in Fort Lauderdale or San Francisco. A tiny place where there was room for like 12 boats or 14 boats. And guys from Florida, um, one of the great places to go fishing would go there, but also a lot of celebrities would go there. Great athletes would go there, like the hockey player Mark Messier used to go there, and, and Jackie Onassis used to go there with one of her boyfriends later on in her life. And it was just a gorgeous place. It was beautiful and it was sensuous. And it was, you know, it, it was heaven. And moving ahead in time, a number of years later, let's say 12 or 14 years later, a terrible accident took place on the island that I'm not going to describe a specific stuff, but a terrible accident took place. And many people died. And the deaths were awful. And the islanders were horrified by what took place, by the amount of dying and the awful nature of the dying bodies that were washed into the beach. I mean, it was just a terrible thing. And oddly enough, this terrible accident seemed to curse this island in a way, at least in the sense that the history of the island changed almost immediately after this event took place. This people that were generous and, and benevolent and lovely and loving became greedy and avaricious and difficult. And there were terrible crimes on the island and ultimately there were murders on the island. And living in New York, the word drifted up to me eventually that, that this great place that I'd loved so much changed so terribly. And I, I thought, oh, my God, I mean, that, you know, this is a story that I might really want to write about. I mean, it sounds kind of a little gruesome, a terrible story I want to write about. But, you know, but it seemed to have chops as a story. And so I kind of organized a trip. I got a few friends and I took my boat and I cruised to this place, it, the trip to the and the island was kind of harrowing in a number of ways because my crew was inexperienced. I was the only one on the boat that had experience traveling in big water. 
And uh, we got into a lot of difficulties getting down there, but we got there and I got to experience the place firsthand in its decline. I knew it earlier on in, in, in its glory and ascendancy, but I got to see it in its decline. And so I, I knew that I wanted to write this story and I tried to write it. This is going back like four years ago. I tried to write it and I was having trouble getting into it for some reason. I knew the story. It was a great story. I thought it would intrigue my readers. It was intriguing me. But every time I tried to, to start it, it, it wasn't coming off well. My sentences were, were too wordy. My paragraphs were too flowery. My style was all wrong writing this book. And then what happened? You know, it was, it was a great serendipitous move in my life. I was invited to write a screenplay, which had nothing to do with the Bahamas and nothing to do with this island. And I worked on the screenplay for two years. I'd never written a screenplay before. And I had to learn a whole different modality of writing. You know, I had to learn to write with no flashbacks, and I had to write crisp, short sentences, and there had to be a lot of action and a lot of forward movement. And when I finished the screenplay, I went back to this book, and I was able to write it in 10 months. It's amazing. And it seems that that space had been calling to you for some time, because I remember I watched an interview with you as you finished, the, I think, The Dream Merchant, and you were saying, like, you're going to a desert island, and you're going to write a story about the romance of the place. Was that the same place? Did you already have it in your head at that time? Yeah, yeah, I did. I had it in my head for sure back then. And this touches upon what we were talking about before when we were talking about being inside the bubble, right? Part of being inside the bubble is, is knowing how you want to get into a story. You know, you want to get into it from the side. You want to get into it straight ahead. You know, what's going to be the angle that's going to get you into the story? And once I found that angle, which had two elements, it had to do with the boat trip going down there to visit the island again in its decline, coupled with having worked on the screenplay, which gave me a sense that I wanted to write it cinematically. And once I had those two ideas together, it, it just wrote itself. That's amazing. And also amazing that as part of the creative process, you left space for that thing to unfold as it would. Because Well, you have to. I mean, you know, like if you're forcing something, you know, it's like anything else in life, right? I mean, like... If you meet a person, you know, that you're friends with, you want to be friends with them, but it's just not happening between the two of you. You know, you're, you're going to lunch and you don't know what to say to your, your friends, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and, and it's, it's dead and you try again and it's dead. You know, it's not going to work unless it's working. So as a writer, you know if it's working or not. Yeah, I love that. And it also feels like there's some interesting parallels because is it that... Your boat is also has the same name, the ebb tide, as the boat in the book. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it feels like the there's that is. kind of parallel journey of you writing the book, but also this boat that takes you into this space that then lets this book write itself. Like I love that those are there's that parallel. Well, you know, I had this idea. I mean, it might sound a little wacky to our listeners right now, but like you know, when I was talking a few minutes earlier to you about my my history as a writer, and I, I spent this period of time as a journalist, right? You know, I've, I've had this feeling for a long time that fiction and nonfiction are really much, much more similar mm -hmm. than people think, think that like, you know, like when you think of the Ernest Hemingway novel, you think, well, you know, Hemingway, he made up these great characters and wrote this novel, he wrote The Sun Also Rises. But if you look at the first draft of The Sun Also Rises, you see that Jake Barnes, who's the protagonist of that book, yeah. Hemingway calls him Hem, H-E-M. So Hemingway was Jake Barnes, and other characters in that book are other friends of his whose names he used in the first draft. But that later on, you know, he changed them to fictional names, 
story around. Well, I had this idea with this deep water blues, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of like rip the cover off the illusion, you know, to, to take real characters like myself, Fred, like John Mitchell, because John Mitchell's a friend of mine who traveled on the boat, but he's also a painter. And he, he accompanied me, come to me on this trip and did drawings of characters that we met along the way. I, mm-hmm. I kind of like that idea of illustrating the novel. And so I had this idea of taking real characters and introducing them into a semi-fictional world and letting the, the real characters kind of interrelate to the fictional characters and see what happened. And it, it was very cool. It gave me a lot of energy writing this book. I love that. Yeah. And that's, it's really interesting that John Mitchell, his illustrations are then in the book. I mean, yeah, there's like, then this goes kind of meta on us quickly to know that then reality is also being reflected right back at us in a fictional story. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was going back a few books, I wrote a memoir called The Last Marlin, which really wasn't so much about fishing. It was about Growing up in Great Neck with a, you know, a painter mother. My mother was a great painter. Her work, her work is in museums all over the world. And a salesman father. You know, when I started writing that book, that it would be pretty easy to write it because I figured, you know, listen, I'm writing about my own life. It's something I want to know. It's my own life. But when I started writing it, I remembered, I realized very quickly that I remembered certain points along the road. That it was a, I knew certain events. But when I tried to think about how to get from point A to point B, sometimes I couldn't figure it out. And so I would ask a relative, but sometimes my, my relative didn't know. Mm-hmm. So I tried to imagine how to get to point, from point A to point B. I said, well, maybe I did it this way. And I wrote it in. And so I wrote about my life knowing certain things and making educated guesses about other things. And when I finished the book, and before I turned it into Viking, they were my publisher of that book, I thought, you know, wait a second. Maybe I should call this a novel because, you know, I make up certain things and certain things are real. Isn't this what novels are about? So I thought about that for a few weeks. Then I finally said, okay, I wrote it as a memoir. I'll turn it in as a memoir. But what I'm getting at here is that even back then, which was whenever I wrote that book, I guess it was 16 or 17 years ago or 15 years ago, there was a kind of like a dance between fiction and nonfiction in my work. That's interesting to think about. And how that maybe then influenced some of your segue into more work with novels and fiction. I mean, and I think I'm reflecting on my own life. If I wrote a memoir, there are definitely pieces of childhood that I would have to piece together just, you know, kind of on a whim because I don't remember all of it either. Yeah. And, and like if you sit that, do you have brothers or sisters? I have one sister. Yeah. Okay. So if you sat down, your sister and, 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 reflected on an event that took place, let's say 15 years ago, right? Or 20 years ago. You might be surprised that differently you, you remember it. And then, uh-huh. and then you might even have a, a conversation about who's remembering it better or whose re- reality is really real and whose isn't. You know what I'm getting at here? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, we really do make up a lot of our past. Yeah. And that is fascinating then putting that onto Deepwater Blues about how then the role of things, how much of it is a possible journey that the ebb tide took, <laughs> you know, and, and how much of it is then the different versions of what could happen had different situations arisen. One of the things I know that you do and that I feel like the main character, Bobby, is this really interesting dance between 
good and evil. I took it upon myself to think on how do we see inside ourselves, as the In Excess song says, every single one of us is the devil inside. Do you want to talk a little bit about that dance? Because I feel like there's a lot of that good and evil in this story. And I know you've talked about it before, and it's fascinating. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it, because I, I said a little earlier to you that probably my mom and my father were, were uh, my great literary influences. And when I wrote that memoir, it was most, mostly an homage to my father more than anything else. I admired him so much. He was a salesman. But objectively speaking, he did a lot of bad things. I mean, he, he uh, hurt people financially. You know, he, was, he would do anything to close a deal. He was, he was ambitious and crossed a lot of lines in order to be very successful. But I loved him. So if you were to read that book, I think you, that would be a, a very good example in Fred's writing of a character that, kind of, that combines elements of good and evil. And when I write characters, I'm drawn to that. You know, I was having lunch recently with a friend, and, and for some reason the subject of Bernie Madoff came up. And I said to this friend, you know, if I had, had the opportunity to write a profile of Bernie Madoff, I think it would probably be somewhat more sympathetic than some of the profiles that have been written. Not that I don't see the evil in what he did. You know, I mean, he, he, you know, he did terrible things to people. I don't have to tell, to, to tell our listeners that the evil of Bernie Madoff. But also, when I think of his life, there's a sadness about it. All that. And he lost, he lost both of his kids. He lost his wife. His wife doesn't visit him in jail anymore. You know, so when I write characters, I'm intrigued by the multidimensionality of all people. When I write a hero, there's a dark side in a hero that I'll, that I'll explore. When I write about a, a saint, a really essentially good person, I'll be inclined to look for a dark side because I think we all have a dark side. Yeah, I think that's so true. And it's maybe one of my favorite parts of any good character. You know, I, I find myself often really drawn to the character's that kind of know or understand or deeply are fighting internally with that darker side. Because I think that's, you know, funny maybe for somebody who's got a podcast called Jumpstart Your Joy. But I think we all know intuitively what it's like to be pulled into that space of when the demons come up, how do we choose? And, th and that's maybe where the focus of the show is, is like, how do we choose joy? Or, you know, when we're in that space where we've found ourselves into the territory that isn't where we want to be, how do we find our way out? And so that's interesting. In the novel, you, and you, you referred to Bobby, he's a, he's a great example of this. I mean, I, again, I'm a little hampered because I don't want to give away too much. But, but <laughs> yeah. you know, but Bob, Bobby goes to very dark places in his life. Yes. But by the end of the book, he really finds a new way of being. It's a kind of redemption. And I like that. I mean, I think, first of all, it was true. There is a Bobby. It's a real story. And, and he does evolve as a personality. And the end, he's... If you were to meet him at this stage of his life, you know, Bobby used to refer to himself as a pirate when he was a younger man. But he's, he's quite saintly now, if you were to meet him. Mm, that's amazing. Well, and it makes me think, I don't know why, but of like Darth Vader. Like there's that same, like this person went to the very worst places and then very near the end also resolves into someone who understands that bad space and is now determined to be in the light. I think it's, yeah, right. fascinating. I didn't plan on talking about Darth Vader today, but <laughs> I love Star Wars. You never, so. Right. You never know where the conversation will go, right? Exactly. Yeah. And where do you, I know you've talked a little bit in the past about that space 
of characters who have hope. And, and I think specifically you've said it about a good salesman is that the salesman is the one who always has that hope and holds out hope. Maybe even if I'm kind of reading between the lines, even to the detriment of others, like they kind of hold on to that. I don't know if you want to talk about that role as good and evil, if you can. Well, you know, it's funny. In my life, I've had this great affection for salesmen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, (laughs) a great salesman, if you're open to it, can really make your day. I mean, knowing him, because he has a way of painting the reality so beautiful that you can become intoxicated with it. You know, he can just make his wares seem like the greatest thing on earth. You know, like if you think about Burt Lancaster in that, in that great movie, what was it, where he was playing a, uh, an evangelist? He, he was like so, he was like such a, everyone fell in love with him, but he, was, but he was fundamentally evil. He was a corrupted soul. And a lot of salesmen are like that, you know. And I've had friendships in life with, with a salesman who took advantage of me financially, but I so enjoyed being with him. And he painted life so beautifully that it seemed worth it to me, as odd as that might sound. So I, I guess that's bringing good and evil together. I'm not sure it's exactly evil, but it's certainly a dark side. Yeah, I think we need those, both in real life and in characters. Like We need those characters who are so full of hope and that can paint that picture for us. I mean, I don't know if that's too far different from what like even Walt Disney did. You know, like here is this version of our reality that is so hopeful and beautiful and you can be in it and you can participate in it. And maybe at the one end, that kind of thing is just too much. And we have that weird sense of like, yeah, this is not real. (laughs) But on the other side, like, I think there is, we all want to hang on to that hope of things could be beautiful and things can be wonderful. Right. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Yeah. And dark literary figures can be very inspiring. You think over time that, you know, the heroes, the heroes of, of great novels are often dark personalities, but yet they have something about them that intrigue us and are, and are uplifting. I read this book recently by David Carr. It's called The Night of the Gun. David Carr, for our listeners that might not know, was a very excellent journalist. He wrote for a number of papers and also wrote uh, for the New York Times the last years of his life. And he wrote this memoir called the Night of the Gun, in which he describes being an abject drug addict for a 20-year period of life when he was very productive in his work. But after he finished his day's work, he would shoot up with heroin or cocaine, and he'd sleep on the street, and he'd sleep in his vomit, and he treated everyone he knew badly. He he left his kids locked in a car. He beat up his wife. He did awful things, awful, really unforgivable things. But somehow when you read this book, which I guess is kind of mea culpa, right? And he's he's saying, this is how terrible I once was. Mm. There's something uplifting about it. But he's able to reveal this, at the end of the book, he's no longer this way. He's a good father. You know, he's he's, he's a good husband. But he was terrible way that he was in an earlier time in his life. And it's kind of uplifting to that. Yeah, because I think as as humans, what we want the resolution is that, I mean, it's a beautiful story. And I think we love those stories because it is our hope that people will land in a place that is positive. Right. It's redemptive. Yeah. Mm, That's really good stuff. Because then that does, that gets into some of the great characters. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but like even the story of Jesus or other spiritual leaders are very much that way as well, that there is that place where we go through the darkness to get to the light. Absolutely. 
When I was a student at Canyon College, I fell in love with the author John Milton because in Paradise Lost, you know, a God and the devil are linked so intimately. You know, in Milton's writing, there's no such thing as, as a God without a devil, and no such thing as a devil without a God. Just another way of making your point, right? Yeah, that's powerful stuff. <laughs> And really interesting to be able to then, I'm sure as an author, play with those same themes and have them weave through in a way that kind of go back, going back to the same thing that we were talking about, that then comes through you, that you get to play with those things. Right. I mean, literary, ten, literary tension is at the basis of all good writing. I mean, you sit in a room and you look at a room from one angle and you look at it from another angle. If you only look at it from one angle, you know, if you only tell a story from one angle, it can, it can become flat and boring no matter how good the story is. If you look at it from one angle and then look at it from another angle, there's a kind of fishing that takes place and the story kind of comes alive like a real person. Mm. So these elements are very organic in life and in good writing. I love that very much. Is there other pieces about your process or about Deepwater Blues that you might want to bring into this conversation that you feel like you haven't gotten to talk about elsewhere? This new, new book is my baby, and I hope some of your uh, ardent listeners will, will take a read. You can find it on Amazon. They sell it at a great discount, and it's a great place to order it from. And uh, people ask me, you know, what's your favorite book? And the truth of the matter is, the book that I just finished is always my favorite book. <laughs> so yeah. I, wrote, I wrote Searching for Bottom Fisher, and it was a big international bestseller. But at the moment, Deep Water Blues is my favorite book mm. that I've ever written. No, no question about it. I will finish with one, with one point, you know. Because we've talked a lot about writing process, right? Mm -hmm. And someone asked me recently, if you had to give suggestions to a a young writer and you could only make one suggestion, what would it be? And this is going to sound like a very simple little suggestion, but it's a a little suggestion that's got very, very big chops. I would tell a young writer, take a little notebook, a little thing. You know, it's just, you know, four or five inches long, two and a half inches wide, Mm -hmm. and put it in your breast pocket with a pen. And if you're working on a story, just leave that notebook there. And when you finish your work, go about your day, you know, ride your bicycle or go to hear some music or have a nice dinner with your wife and kids or whatever. And you'll be surprised that an idea will come to mind. You're not even thinking about your story. An idea will come to mind. And then jot that idea into the notebook. And I think what you'll find is that is that the ideas that land in the notebook are some of the best ideas that you get. Some of the Best ideas that you write aren't necessarily the ideas that come to you when you're sitting in front of the keyboard and you're composing paragraphs, but they come to you when you're listening to music or having a talk with a friend or having a cup of coffee or not even thinking about writing. They just come to you. It's very important to write, write them in a notebook because they, they drift into the ether if you don't. That would be my piece of advice. Mm, I love that very much. And thank you. Yeah, I know. There is something magical about doing something else and just letting your brain take the break, I guess. And last and most joyfully, what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? The three had me stop. Yeah. Um, when I'm feeling gloomy, on a given day, if I'm in New York and I'm working on something and I'm feeling gloomy, if I meet a friend and I have a great talk, it can be uplifting. There's, there's just nothing quite like the passion between two friends mm. for changing one's mood and feeling good about life. That would be one thing. And the second thing is in my life, and this is very idiosyncratic, if I've been working hard on my writing or if I haven't been working very hard on my writing and I wish I was, I go fishing. Because fishing is very transformative for me. It, it changes my state of mind. It gives me a different perspective on life. 
and it fills me with energy. So those are the two things that come to mind. I love it. And thank you very much for sharing them and for being on the show. It's been a real treat getting to speak with you, Fred. I've really enjoyed our talk. It was a terrific talk. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. If you want to find out more about this episode, including links to the things that we've talked about, you can find the show notes at jumpstartyourjoy.com. And you can search for this episode right up there in the right-hand corner of the website, and you'll find it. While you're on the website, I know you're going to want to sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is Three Joyful Things. It's where I take a look and give you guys the behind the scenes of what I'm really thinking about with each episode, including the inspiration, intention, and action, along with the choices that you can make in your own life to bring some of the things that each guest or I share into your everyday life. So it's a lot of fun. You can find the sign up for that off the homepage or within the show notes of every episode. And I would love to connect with you. I hang out a ton on Instagram, where my handle is jumpstartyourjoy. You can also find the Facebook page for this podcast at jumpstartyourjoy. So I hope you guys will come on back next week. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.